There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg and Colin. Greg, we've been having a pretty awesome conversation over the past three or four weeks. That's been a technical one. We've been really digging into some of the more technical aspects of investing. So those that were looking for more fluffy episodes, perhaps these ones aren't those ones. But we started this discussion looking at volatility and probability, and then we headed over to the capital asset pricing model and expected return. And today we're going to carry on this conversation and look at factor investing. So talking about how the capital asset pricing model is similar but different than what's called the arbitrage pricing theory. And then take it one step further and talk about factor investing and the Fama French factor model. And I know you and I are very familiar with the Fama French factor model. We use it almost every day in the we investments yeah, that we, we have. Sure. But this one is interesting given all of the press that value versus growth investing has been getting with the most recent market volatility. You're seeing a fairly substantial sell-off of large cap growth stocks. I think the S&P 500 did enter a correction. Yeah, I think as of yesterday, it was down 10% from its peak. So we'll see what happens there. But certainly those kind of corrections are generally pretty common. It's pretty just, normal. We haven't seen too many of them in the last 10 years or so. So I remember the statistics. I remember when we had, what's his name from Russell Investments on our show? Chief Investment Officer. Shay? No. Well, it doesn't really matter. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Eric Ristabin. Eric Ristabin. And Eric yeah. went through that about how a sell-off in a calendar year is pretty normal. It's something like, was it like 90% of calendar years have a correction? A 10%, of 10% correction. Percent. That's right. So what we're going through right now, although it never feels good to go through, is actually pretty normal. Of course, given the high levels of, if you look at the Dow Jones trading in the 35,000 range or something, so when you get a a relatively modest sell-off, it adds up to a lot of points. People listen and hear the point number. In some cases, it sounds more dramatic than it is. That's just that law of large numbers exactly. in a different way. I mean, if the Dow goes down 500 points, you go, oh my God, the Dow's down 500 points. Yeah, but it's like at 35,000, right? That's right. One and a half percent or something. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Well, let's get okay. into this. Let's dive in. So let's start with just a bit of an overview of the capital asset pricing model, and we're going to compare it to the arbitrage pricing theory, which flowed from that. So just as a reminder, last week we talked about how in the 1960s, Jack Trainer, William Sharp, John Lintner, and Jan Mosin developed what's called the capital asset pricing model, or CAPM, as we discuss it, to determine the theoretical appropriate rate that an asset should return given its level of risk assumed. And that's given the level of risk relative to the market as a whole. So afterwards, in 1976, economist Stephen Ross developed the arbitrage pricing theory as an alternative to the CAPM. And the APT, arbitrage pricing theory, introduced a framework that tries to explain the theoretical rate of return of an asset or portfolio in equilibrium as a linear function of the risk of the asset or portfolio with respect to a set of factors that capture systematic risk. Wow. And so... 
that's a mouthful, and we're going <laughs> to dive into that in more detail in just a second. Let's go back to just for the listener's sake, a linear function. That's just a graphical term. So it's just saying if you have an x-axis and a y-axis, there's some linear relationship. That's right. And usually it involves adding certain factors and certain components. And we'll talk about that as we get into the mathematical background of that. First of all, as a review, the CAPM, the CAPM allows investors to quantify the expected return on an investment given the investment risk, the risk-free rate of return, the expected market return, and the beta, which we've talked about a lot, beta of an asset or portfolio. Okay, and the risk-free rate of return that's used is typically the federal funds rate or the 10-year government bond yield, something like that. And it's called the risk-free rate because the chance of the U.S. government defaulting on that is basically zero. Exactly. It's risk-free. Yeah. Okay. So an assets or a portfolio's beta measures the theoretical volatility in relation to the overall market. So for example, if a portfolio has a beta of 1.25 in relation to the S&P 500 index, it's theoretically 25% more volatile than the S&P 500 index. And therefore, if the index rises by 10%, the portfolio rises by 12.5%. And if the index falls by 10%, the portfolio would be expected to fall by 12.5%. So it's just a price sensitivity measure. Exactly. And the formula used is fairly simple, not as easy to describe over a podcast as it is to look at on a sheet of paper. But essentially, the formula used in CAPM is the expected return is the risk-free rate plus the beta of the portfolio times the market premium or the equity premium. And that equity premium is just the expected return on the market minus the risk-free rate. So that's the premium. If you think about it, if the risk-free rate is 1% and the expected return on the market is 8%, as we talked about last year, the equity premium is 8 minus 1 or 7. So again, the expected return is the risk-free rate plus the beta of the portfolio times the equity premium. And so there are some people that say that the CAPM is just too simplistic. It's only showing one price sensitivity measure and one market premium. And so that's where this arbitrage pricing theory came from. So arbitrage pricing theory is a multi-factor asset pricing model, whereas the CAPM is a single factor pricing model. So in the arbitrage pricing theory, it's based on the idea that an asset's returns can be predicted using that same linear relationship that you talked about between the expected return, but using a number of macroeconomic variables instead of just beta. They use that to capture systematic risk. And as we talked about in previous episodes, systematic risk is just the risk of being invested. Unsystematic risk would be like company-specific risk. So it's a useful tool for analyzing portfolios from a value investing perspective and in order to identify securities that may be temporarily mispriced. That's the whole premise of the arbitrage pricing theory. Well, I mean, it makes sense. That's the term arbitrage. So how does it work? It was developed as an alternative to the capital asset pricing model, which you talked about. But unlike the CAPM, which assumes markets are perfectly efficient, the arbitrage pricing theory actually assumes markets sometimes misprice securities. So before the market eventually corrects and securities move back to their fair value. And I think that's a pretty fair statement for a lot of people. A lot of people would say, yes, the CAPM makes sense if the market was completely efficient 100% of the time. And what's been shown is that there's periods of time where maybe it's not 100% efficient. So using the arbitrage pricing theory, arbitragers, that's a tough word to say. Am I saying that right? You are. Arbitragers 
Hope to take advantage of any deviations from fair market value. So looking at some spread. However, this is not a risk-free operation in the classic sense of arbitrage because investors, they're assuming that the model is correct and making directional trades rather than locking in risk-free profits. So it's not risk-free to do this. It's just another model. That's right. And it is a mathematical model. So while the arbitrage pricing theory is more flexible than the capital asset pricing model, it's actually more complex. And that's where a lot of people will default to the CAPM versus the arbitrage pricing theories because it's just simpler to understand. It's simpler to calculate because the CAPM only takes into account one factor. We talked about that market risk or beta or the beta of that market risk. So while the arbitrage pricing theory has multiple factors and it takes a considerable amount of research to determine how sensitive a security is to various macroeconomic risks. Like we're experiencing some of those right now in the world. I've been getting a few calls lately about why is my portfolio down? Why is the market down? We look at things like, I don't know, inflation. Inflation's kind of, That's a big kind one. of at an all-time high right Well, not an all-time yeah. high, but a high. We've got a potential war occurring in yep. Ukraine and Russia. We've got supply chain issues. Those could all be various factors that could be used to calculate an expected return. So the factors as well as how many of them are subjective choices, just like what we talked about, which means people have varying results depending on the choices they make. So if you use certain factors to explain a return, you're going to get a different output than if you use different factors. So the arbitrage pricing theory factors are the systematic risk that cannot be reduced by simple diversification of a portfolio. So the most reliable ones or the most common arbitrage pricing theory factors that people tend to use are inflation, which we yep. mentioned, gross national product, corporate bond spreads, and shifts in the yield curve, something that's been occurring recently. We've yep. had a shift in the yield curve. Other commonly used factors would be gross domestic product, commodities prices, market indices, and even exchange rates. So I want to give just a quick example, because I know this is complex stuff. Like I'm not expecting most people (laughs) to come away from this episode and say, oh, I totally get how the arbitrage pricing theory works versus the capital asset pricing model. That's kind of our world. That's right. But I think it's really important to understand that a lot of these things are based on models and then models. And as we'll talk in probably in the next episode at length, models basically just provide a theoretical basis to go back and look at data to see how well the models matched up with the actual results. And if they have, then they can be used for future investment purposes. Let me give this example. So I'll give it in two ways. So the first example, if we calculate using the capital asset pricing model and we use the risk-free rate at 3%, the beta at 1.3, and the market risk premium at 9%, if we plug in those numbers, our expected return for that portfolio is 10.8%. Got it, 10.8. That's in the capital asset pricing model. But if we use the arbitrage pricing theory and we include some different factors, so in this case, we're using gross domestic product, we're using inflation, and we're using gold prices. And I won't bore you with all the numbers, but if we plug in the risk-free rate plus the beta times the expected return of each factor and add them together, in this example, our expected return is actually 15.2%. Interesting. Quite a big spread, 15.2 versus 10.8, simply by selecting different factors to use in the formula. And what's interesting is when you look at the betas of those various things, you can see that you mentioned gross domestic product maybe has a beta of 0.6. 
which means GDP itself is less volatile than the market as a whole. But gold prices have a negative beta, negative 0.7. What that says is that gold prices are actually negatively correlated to the markets and provides a reason why gold prices might actually be used. Gold might be used in a portfolio. As a hedge. Exactly. Well, that was a real mouthful we just went through. That was, that was a mouthful. <laughs> and again, the numbers are less important than the whole basic concept of a multi-factor model as opposed to a single factor model, which is cap M. And I think, Craig, it'd be fair for everybody to kind of get that intuitively. Like if you have one factor that you're using in your calculation versus having multiple factors, you're going to get different outcomes. The problem, as pointed out, the reason this is more complex is it's not clear which factors you should use. That's right. And a good part of the academic research that's been done over the last 40 years has really been trying to identify which factors are the most prevalent and most important in actually predicting or contributing to higher expected returns in the future. So let's talk about factor investing a little bit more then. So factor investing is a strategy that chooses securities on attributes that are associated with higher returns, which is obviously the goal. And there's two main types of factors that have driven returns of stocks, bonds, and others. Macroeconomic factors, some of which we just talked about, and style factors. So the Macroeconomic factors capture the broad risks across asset classes, while style factors try to explain returns and risks within asset classes. So macro is just what we mentioned, inflation, interest rates, GDP, right. et cetera. Exactly. Those would have impacts on asset classes that would be stocks, bonds, real estate, et cetera. Whereas style factors tends to try to look at explaining returns within asset classes. And for the purposes of this discussion, we'll start talking about Stocks primarily, that's what a lot of people talk about, but certainly there's style factors that affect bond returns as well. So we talked about the common macroeconomic factors. There's microeconomic factors like a company's credit, its share liquidity, stock price volatility. Style factors encompass growth versus value stocks. Market capitalization, meaning basically how big big companies, whether they're big or small relative to all of the companies within the index, within the stock index, or industry sectors themselves. So that industry sector might be something like, I don't know, consumer discretionary versus consumer staples. Absolutely. Energy, technology, healthcare, those are all individual industry sectors. Just getting a little deeper into factor investing, from a theoretical standpoint, it's really designed to enhance diversification, generate above market returns, and manage risk. Portfolio diversification has long been a popular safety tactic, but gains in diversification are lost if the chosen securities move in lockstep with the broader market. An investor might choose a mixture of stocks and bonds that all decline in value when certain market conditions arise. So that would be not a great situation, but the good news is that factor investing can offset potential risks by targeting broad, persistent, and long recognized drivers of return. And again, that's what a lot of the academic research has been geared towards trying to identify. Let's relate that to what's happening right now in the market, because going back to the calls we've been getting about, why is my portfolio down or why is the market down? Why are bonds down at the same time? We talked about this, I think, in our last episode or one before, where during times of really high volatility, those asset classes that tend to be negatively correlated, so moving in opposite directions, tend to move in the same direction for a short period of time. If you have a lot of volatility and the stock market sells off, the bond market is probably going to sell off a little bit too. 
Absolutely. And in building portfolios, you look at traditional portfolio allocations, like let's say a typical one might be 60% stocks and 40% bonds. Ah, the 60-40 portfolio. The 60-40 portfolio. Those portfolios are pretty easy to implement. However, factor investing, which again, we can talk about as more diversifying, can seem overwhelming given that there are, I think, something like there's hundreds, hundreds of identified factors to choose from. So rather than look at some of the complex attributes such as momentum, factor investing can start with simpler elements such as style, where we talked about growth versus value, or size, like large cap versus small cap, and risk, which we talked about as beta. And those attributes are easily available for most securities, and you can even find them on just popular stock research websites because it's pretty easy to identify size by market capitalization, style, growth, or value by some measure of valuation, whether it's price to book value, price to earnings, price to sales, you can divide it up any way you like. So getting into some of those foundations that we just talked about, value tries to capture excess returns from stocks that have low prices relative to what their fundamental value might be. And again, as I mentioned, you can commonly track that by price to book value, which I think is probably the most common. Probably the most misunderstood for our listeners. It could be. Price to earnings is something that people might be more familiar with. Dividends or free cash flow. Those are all fundamental issues of a company, basically, and easy to track. I know when I'm talking to clients and we talk about value, I like to liken it to going to the store and that your favorite shirt is 50% off. It's on sale, 50% off. You're probably more inclined to buy it at a cheaper price versus you go two weeks later and it's now not even full price. It's like full price plus 10%. You're probably not inclined to buy it. So value, really what it does is it tracks relative price. So when you compare, let's use price to book value. So you can calculate the book value of a share or of a company based on what is its value relative to the total value of all of its assets. So you can do that. So how do you then select stocks based on price to book value? Well, if you can look at the entire market, and let's say an easy thing to do is to look at the price to book values of the 500 stocks that are part of the S&P 500 index. Well, if you just rank them by price to book value, there's going to be a bunch that are at the top. Those would be growth company stocks, like most of the large technology companies are growth stocks. So they would be trading at very high prices relative to their book values. Whereas other stocks, whether they're utilities companies or banks or some other companies may well be trading at a low price to book value. And it might be a function of the type of company. It might also be because the company's run into trouble and has experienced hard times and the share price is sold off. And therefore it's price to book value that it's trading at might be quite low. Focusing on those low price to book value stocks is what value investing is all about. Right on. Size is another one. And Typically, they found by means of studying the data, and we're going to talk about that as well a little bit in the next episode, portfolios that consist of small company stocks or shares of small companies tend to exhibit greater returns over long periods of time than portfolios just with large company stocks. And so investors can capture size by looking at the market capitalization, again, of a stock relative to the market itself, just as we did by looking at value. And by focusing in on small company stocks, can have a higher expected return over time. How I like to liken this to people is if you look at a very large company versus a smaller company within the same space, yep. one just has more room to grow than the other. One's already grown 
and one has got more room to grow. And one thing you have to keep in mind is that those small company stocks or stocks with low price to book values might actually be riskier. And in fact, if capitalism has anything going for it, then investors should expect a higher rate of return by taking on extra risk. That's another episode right there. Exactly. Yeah. So another factor that's been studied a lot is momentum. And momentum just means that stocks that have outperformed in the past tend to exhibit strong returns going forward for some period of time. And momentum strategies tend to be grounded in relative returns from three months to like, let's say, a one-year time frame. Quality is something else that's been identified. Quality is defined by low debt, stable earnings, consistent asset growth, and strong corporate governance. And investors could identify quality stocks by using some common financial metrics like return on equity, debt to equity, and earnings variability. And volatility. So there is some research that suggests that stocks with low volatility earn greater risk-adjusted returns than high-volatile assets. And looking at standard deviation from one to three-year time frame is a common method of capturing beta. Interestingly, it's some of this research around volatility that had people experiencing some issues with CAPM, given that CAPM suggests that high variability or highly volatile assets would be expected to have higher returns relative to the market because of their higher beta. And in fact, some of the research that identified low volatility stocks or portfolios can actually do better, which would contradict the CAPM. And by the way, there's some reasons for that. And there's also some suggestions that that is not a permanent feature, but it's just something relative to certain timeframes where low volatility stocks might actually outperform. I think with all of these factors, we have to keep in mind, as I mentioned, that there's hundreds and hundreds of factors that could potentially identify characteristics that would be associated with higher expected returns. What's important is to see which of these factors are real and which ones are just capturing other aspects of the same factors. And that's what a lot of the research that's been done has shown. Right on. Well, we're going to talk about the Fama French factor model. Now, Greg, are we recommending that people invest in the Fama French factor model way? Yes, we are. Of course we are, because that's how we invest our own money and it's how we invest our clients' money. Our model portfolios actually follow the Fama French factor model. So I'm going to get into that a little bit. So it's a widely used multi-factor model, similar to arbitrage pricing theory, which I just talked about earlier. In it, there's these two guys named Eugene Fama and Ken French. I mean, Eugene Fama just happens to be a Nobel laureate. Ken French was his research colleague and they built this thing called the Fama French, originally three-factor model that every finance student in the free world reads about. It's a very common model. Now it was built on an expansion of that capital asset pricing model. And it utilizes three, well, it started with three specific factors, size of firms, book to market values, and excess return on the market. So in the model's terminology, they call these three factors SMB, which is small minus big, which is just that small companies, less large companies, high minus low, which is just value minus growth or growth minus value, one of those ways. And the portfolios return less the risk-free rate. So basically you're getting the beta of the market return. So that's the equity premium, the beta of the company size return, and the beta of the profitability return plus the risk-free rate. I got that right? I wouldn't say profitability return. I would say relative price return. Right. Okay. Thanks for correcting me. Yep. (laughs) 
<laughs> what, he, what he said. Uh, anyways, these three factors, when they look at them, the expected return on a portfolio that has those three factors built into it seems to be higher than just passively investing in the market. That's right. And the reasons why this was such an important paper that they came out with is because by using data going back to 1926, you could see that those factors are prevalent, not just in the U.S. market, but in international stock markets. And that prevalence makes the research fairly robust that those factors are real because it's not just an anomaly that they identified in one market around the world or in one time period, but rather over multiple time periods in multiple markets. If your options are to pick a handful of stocks just randomly, which is what some people do, or to use a screening technique that screens thousands of securities using a three-factor model or a more-factor model, which one has the better probability of a positive outcome? Well, Colin, I would say the one that has screened thousands of stocks from around the world and is tilting towards those factors that are associated with the higher expected returns. We can just wrap up the episode right there? Absolutely. Yeah. Actually, I think we should wrap it up. We're running along here. For today, that was kind of a fun discussion. I know it was technical. I know the last three or four episodes have been technical. But the reason we're getting into some of this more technical aspect is, like I said last time, somebody asked us to. That's right. And we're happy to oblige. There's a lot of things we can talk about in investing that are maybe easier to follow than factor models. But this is really important stuff too. Well, and what it does is it highlights the science that goes into building portfolios. Back in the olden days, like when I started in this business, you would build portfolios by saying, well, I guess we should have a couple of telecom companies and maybe a couple of utility companies and maybe a couple of oil companies. And they would all be selected just based on a point in time analysis of the company's prospects. Well, I think this company should do well. They've got an experienced management team and a strong balance sheet and things like that. And in building portfolios, there has to be more to it than that. And I think what the academic science shows is that there is a lot more to it than that when you construct portfolios. And whether you use a single factor model, whether it's CAPM or the arbitrage pricing theory, or more recently, factor investing, there are better ways to build portfolios that expose that portfolio to the factors of higher expected returns. And if you have that ability to do that, why wouldn't you? Exactly. Why wouldn't you? But there is a reason why people do default to CAPM because it's just more simple. Correct. Right? Yeah, right on. So for our next episode, we're going to get into a little bit more on f- specifically on those factors. What else are we going to talk about in that episode? Well, we'll talk about those factors. We'll also talk a little bit about what made this kind of research possible. And that is the development of the databases that allow researchers to look at stock data going back 100 years. That should be a really interesting discussion to talk about databases. (laughs) 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 Maybe we'll try to bring something into that conversation. (laughs) But I mean, because listen, it's not like when I'm with my family at the dinner table, which we're not usually at the dinner table together anymore because I have two teenagers. But it's not like we talk about CAPM or arbitrage pricing theory or FAMA French factor models. No. This is not common language. They might be more interested in what happened to Walt Disney stock today. True. Yeah. Actually, hey, you bring up a good point. We are going to Disney World in 23 days. Well, good for you. Looking forward to it. 
First significant travel in two years, I'm guessing? Yes, first time in two years we'll be on a plane. How many trips have been canceled over the last two years based on the hope that things would be better for travel? I mean, we had a Hawaii trip planned for early April of 2020. That one went away pretty fast. And then we had a potential Italy trip planned for November of 21. That one went away. And we had a Mexico trip planned for this March. That one's gone. So what about you? Well, I told you we're going to Disney World. That's the first (laughs) time we've done anything in two years. I think you had a Phoenix trip that was canceled at Christmas this year. Yeah, we were supposed to go to Arizona March 13th of 2020. That didn't happen. Timing, right? Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Timing. Well, glad to hear you're getting one off the ground. Okay, remember to give us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you want us to talk about in future episodes. We appreciate you being with us. Yep, till next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2022.